0: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Canadian conductor Carrie Lynn Wilson has led orchestras and opera companies around the world to great acclaim for over two decades. Wilson is of Ukrainian descent and was performing in Europe when the invasion of Ukraine began. With her cousins fighting on the battlefield, she turned her sadness and anger into action by creating an ensemble of Ukrainian musicians displaced by war. This was not just a job.
2: It was about forming an orchestra of soldiers of music, not just play beautiful concerts and have wonderful success musically. We were going out to fight.
1: You're listening to Speaking Soundly, the podcast that explores the art of artistry. I'm your host, David Krauss, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. As a musician in New York City, I get to perform with some of the world's greatest artists every night. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with these inspiring performers as we lift the veil on talent to hear about their process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I remember you from school. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a class called Lab Orchestra, and in this class, all the conducting students had a chance to conduct an orchestra made up of us students. And I always looked forward to playing the class, mostly because of your teacher, the venerable and somewhat scary conductor, Otto Werner Mueller. He was uncompromising and quite tyrannical. So part of me was always excited to go to the class just to see who he'd rip into, (laughs) because it happened regularly, right? I wondered what... Your experience was like studying with him. (laughs) And did you ever suffer his wrath?
2: (laughs) Well, David, I always remember admiring his integrity, admiring how he worked with the orchestra, how he meticulously not only worked on the technical aspect, but actually the phrasing. And I know that's what drove us crazy in the orchestra. You know, we're all young, ambitious players. Right. That academic study was actually something that I cherished because I could see the difference. I could hear the difference. And it really made him somebody that I considered one of the best. So I had a tremendous respect for him. And I know that he took me on as somebody I had never conducted. Hmm. The audition was actually my first time conducting in front of a group, and it was you guys, my peers, who I knew well. But when I won the audition to become one of his students, he ripped us apart no matter what. I mean, Mm. even if he loved us, he respected us, he didn't tolerate anything that wasn't at his 100% standard kind of level of of what is required for a, a conductor. And we were all terrified. We literally didn't sleep the night before and would just cram all night he really controlled us. Now, as a student, it works. I would say once I was out of these four years under his reign, I was free to pick up my own sort of style. And when I say free, that, that really is I was out of the cage because right. he controlled every single gesture. It was very strict so that... We had this solid foundation which we could all embark on careers with, and uh, to this day, I'm so grateful for this terrifying regime. I was right. Under. I, I remember I always told people, he says, "Stop cheerleading if you know if you did something that was just a little over over the top." No, and then I I would consider that being expressive, but he said that was cheerleading. So anyway,
1: I remember once he screamed at me, Kraus. <laughs> In music, PP means something else. <laughs> I'm sure he said it to many people, but uh, yeah. That. How would you describe your temperament as a conductor? I work with a lot of different conductors, and some mm-hmm. conductors can be overly effusive. Some of them are very stern. Some of them are just playing cranky all the time. And <laughs> can you describe hmm. your temperament, or at least the one that you're, you're aiming to achieve?
2: It's a difficult question because
1: I hate talking
2: about myself or analyzing myself, but I do know that I love what I do and I really am passionate about working with orchestras. Even if it's the first time, just be super prepared, Mm. as Mueller taught us. Right. Just be 100% prepared. That is your best
1: ammunition to approaching an orchestra and do it with love. Yeah. And what does it feel like? when you get up on the podium and things feel great. You're mm-hmm. driving the orchestra and, and it's like a sports car and you're steering the energy of a hundred people through your interpretation of a great work of art. What does that feel like? Well, it's phenomenal. And it's
2: something that is yeah. sort of outer body experience because it's, it's ultimately not about you, the conductor. It's about making a piece of art come alive. And that's when it's the best sort of formula, when you know you have the tension with the musicians and you're all taken into the world of the composer. It's transported in this
1: world that is superhuman. Is, is there any other part of your life where you get mm. that kind of high when things are really clicking on the podium? Nope. Yeah. No.
2: No. And that's why it's really hard to come down after you conduct. I can't sleep. I'm obsessed by, by the work. When things go well, it's that's what life should be. Yeah. It just is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, of course, not every performance is going to be hair-raisingly inspirational to you. Right. What happens when things aren't clicking mm-hmm. as well? Mm-hmm. In those moments, can you pivot? Can you do things to try to elicit that kind of energy?
2: Yes. I mean, you're constantly trying to make something great. And even if it's the sixth performance, it's it's always a challenge. You can never s- sit back and say, oh, you know, we've had a fantastic performance. It's going to go great the next time. There are so many factors involved, especially with opera. Anything can go wrong. Being flexible is so key to being a conductor because things will not happen the same and... You shouldn't expect them to. I mean, you you know, you have an expectation, you have a standard from which you have prepared a work, and when it isn't realized as you would like it, then it's it's um, you know not as satisfying. But that's the challenge of being a conductor is always trying to make something better.
1: Right. Yeah. And this work, Lady Macbeth of Mtsensk, is a massive opera. You're leading a huge orchestra with the addition of a marching band's worth of brass (laughs) instruments that play both on stage and off. A large chorus, huge cast, spread out on a giant stage, and you're in the middle of it. You're giving cues to every instrument, mouthing every word of this dense Russian text to the singers on stage. You're managing balances, making tempo transitions all at once, and your body is a whirlwind of activity. But as I watch you... Your face is calm, and you actually have a little bit of a smile, and it's like you're having the time of your life. How much preparation goes into being able to do all of those things at once and still have the presence of mind to take in the moment, give a little smile, and say, oh, my God, this is amazing?
2: (laughs) Well, there's a lot of answer there. First of all, experience. (laughs) I've done the piece. I did it in Tel Aviv. I did it in Zurich. It's a piece that is very much in my blood. This is a huge advantage for a conductor. Once you've done something, you have not only the knowledge, but also a bit of tactical memory. There are so many notes, so many phrases, so many words. It appears to be incredibly challenging, but once you have taken all those things individually from the very start, I mean, we're starting with the basics. Studying the text, I have to go to the source, which was... Liskov's novel. So I read it in Russian, and then I have to take another step back until I had to learn Russian, of course. I started about 15 years ago because it's a passion of mine. I love languages, but Russian was very, very difficult. Anyway, so I learned Russian, I read the novel, then I went through every word of the libretto before even looking at the score. To understand what Shostakovich was inspired by, it's not something you can just learn quickly, but I really understand. And I have that as my armor when I come in into conduct.
1: You talk about the myriad of things that is your job as a conductor. And I'm always amazed by the amount of multitasking a conductor has to do and does so well. Just the ability to open up a score and read it is well beyond my comprehension mm-hmm. because as a trumpet player, I play one note at a time. And looking at all the different instruments immediately kind of gives me a headache. Just there's so much to look at. Mm-hmm. But you started as an instrumentalist, as a flute player. Was that transition difficult? So I grew up as a pianist too, and that is a huge advantage because you're used to
2: to reading many more than one line. Um, so I think that is a, a key advantage for a conductor to have. But yes, as a flutist, one of the reasons I left the flute because I felt no longer challenged. I felt like I was limited... As an instrumentalist, I wanted to to be much more. In my last couple of years as a flutist, I was no longer really practicing. I was I was in love with playing in the orchestra. That was my absolute passion, and I started taking courses and not knowing I would be a conductor. But I took courses in Verdi operas, Wagner operas, and then it was it was I started going to a masterclass, and somebody said to me hey, are you taking the conducting edition? And I said, no, 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 I'm just here watching. And it's kind of a cliche story by now, but I was walking home in Central Park that night, and I thought to myself, that's what I should do. That's what I'm going to do. Because, you know, I was aspiring to be an orchestral musician, but I thought, now this actually, this, that's really cool. I'm going to do that. <laughs> and so I spent six months getting to know how to thoroughly understand his score very quickly. So it was a gradual transition when I started uh, studying
1: conducting. You come from a very accomplished musical family from Winnipeg, Canada. Mm -hmm. Were you somewhat predestined? To be a musician and, and talk to me about what yes. it was like to grow up in Winnipeg. Yeah. First of all, when people say, Where are you from?
2: I said, From Winnipeg. They say, Oh, cool. I said, No, you don't need to go there. It's really cold. <laughs> it's minus 40 in the winter. There's actually, so this is October right now, there's actually snow on the ground. Wow. And they're, they notoriously are the coldest city other than Siberia in the world. So we are very strong. I can say that we're very strong, but it has a very um, musical community. We had a lot of yes uh, closed-in time at home, so the, what's better to do than make music? My grandparents were musicians. My grandmother's she's still alive. She's 103. She taught me piano. My grandfather... He was a, a famous baritone, actually. He had his own program on the CBC at work at one point. It was called the Happy Land. It was a variety show. He sang. He did all sorts of things. My father is a violinist, and he was the conductor of the Winnipeg Youth Orchestra. His sister is a, my aunt, is a pianist. And my uncle, who was actually one of my idols, he was the founding cellist of the Emerson String Quartet. So... It was a very musical musical family. And since I was a kid, I mean, since the day I was born, I loved music. There was never any pressure on me to make music. It was just absolutely my passion. So I grew up playing piano, violin, and flute until I went to to Juilliard. Hmm.
1: And, hmm. And I didn't know this until I read it. Winnipeg is home to North America's most concentrated Ukrainian population. Um, right. And, of course, your family contributes to that statistic as your great-grandparents emigrated from Ukraine yes. to Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up, did you feel Ukrainian culture embedded in your lifestyle?
2: Yes, very much. We celebrated Ukrainian Christmases and Orthodox Easter. We had traditional Easter eggs always um, prepared and the traditional breads and pierogies, of cheese I hated the food, but it's okay. It was a beautiful, Slavic, rich memory from my childhood. And at one point, I even took Ukrainian dancing, and I dressed up in the beautiful floral headdress, and I had a Ukrainian costume. So as a child, yes, it was an integral part of my culture, and I always aspired to go there. And it wasn't until I embarked on my international conducting career that I in I guess the first time was in 2005 I went to Kiev and I conducted a concert with the National Symphony there Bruckner 4 I'll never forget. From there I was embraced by Russia Yergev, he took me over to the Marinsky. He said, wow, you're Ukrainian. are oh, wonderful. You, you should come work in Russia. And that's when I went and started working in both the Marinsky and then eventually
1: the Bolshoi. You said that you consider Ukraine to be a second home. And mm-hmm. you point out that this includes all of Russia. Amid today's times, amid mm-hmm. the war, how do you manage to separate politics and art when it's so easy to become... Enraged and polarized by all that's happening to a place that's so near and dear to your heart? Yes. Well, here's the very honest answer
2: I have not separated <laughs> politics with culture. Mm. And it's the first time in my career. And it's because I was so horrified at the start of the invasion, seeing my cousins fighting, seeing my colleagues and friends in Kiev hiding in their basements as they are today,
1: I felt— You don't mean cousins in the, like, we're all brothers, like your actual cousins I, are there yes, fighting.
2: Yes, I have many distant cousins, and I became very close with two of them. One is in Donbas fighting since 2014. He was a professor. He taught journalism. And in 2014, he was so outraged— by the invasion that he he went into the military and now he's an officer. And my cousin Nadia, since the invasion, she has been working as a volunteer, sending supplies. She has been desperate for all sorts of supplies. Mm. At one point, she started writing me when I was in New York. She said, Carolyn, do you think you can find bulletproof shields? And I said, Nadia, I have no idea, but let me see if I can. <laughs> Did you? So I went on the internet. And
1: yeah, Amazon. They
2: didn't. I literally was right. on Amazon looking for bulletproof vests because they had run out of them in Poland everywhere that was uh, a place they used to get their sources from. But the fact was they didn't have the level. I actually know about <laughs> the levels of protection of bulletproof vests for the military. Um, we didn't have the levels because they had sold out of them here as well. To protect. Anyway, I was sending her that kind of thing. And when I went to Poland, I was sending her, uh, I actually took suitcases of military boots, camouflage boots, warm gloves for the troops, and now I'm still sending stuff. Anyway, so she and I, since the invasion, have been very close. And even just this morning, David, she sent me a video of hiding in the bomb shelter with her students. She's an English teacher, and she showed literally her students on their iPhones all you know, for three hours. It's just horrifying. So getting back to the start of the invasion, I said to myself, what can I do? You know, I can't pick up a gun and go help my cousin Ande in Tempest. I can help as a musician. And I thought, seeing all these millions of refugees literally flowing into Poland, a place I've worked many times, I thought, that must be a wonderful... A great resource to find musicians. Why not form an orchestra? Give these players an opportunity to to make music. What Putin and the regime have done so abruptly was taking away their voices, and that's what hurt me the most. So I did form an orchestra of refugees, some of which who had fled Ukraine, some players who are still in Ukraine, and some that were part of the musical diaspora
1: in europe I, I wanted to ask you about this initiative the ukrainian freedom orchestra mm-hmm. you just talked about the inspiration for it but how do you yeah. contact musicians who are refugees right and get music and a place to rehearse yeah. in a space and a tour together i mean how do you even it approach really a project like that
2: it really was incredible so i have to just start by saying that this fantasy of creating this orchestra was turned into a reality with the help of my husband, Peter sure. Kelp. He saw me sobbing. and I said to him, I've got to do something and I want to start this orchestra. He thought it was a fantastic idea. We brainstormed about a few things, but ultimately he took over the logistics of the planning and I took over the artistic. David, there was so many logistics. It was, a, it was really daunting. But yeah. it was a fascinating process.
1: Right. There was a profound quote that I read in the New York Times about one of the musicians in the orchestra. He said, I don't have a gun, but I have my cello. And it was really inspiring. But last week, Russian soldiers shot and killed a Ukrainian conductor after he refused to take part in a concert in an occupied city. Is hearing that particularly hard for you, despite your best efforts, to use music as a tool against violence yeah it's horrifying this ongoing
2: massacre is affecting daily lives of vulnerable citizens including artists it's maddening and I feel helpless which is the worst feeling because I'm somebody who was very proactive you know I communicate with my friends and cousins every day and try and give them all the support I can. And I miss the fact that when we were out there performing, they would say, thank you. You're fighting for us. And it gave them a lot of hope. And today, what I'm hearing is they're becoming demoralized. And it's living in a constant state of anxiety is what I hear. They're not scared because they are so brave and so determined to fight this to the end. Mm. But it's the level of anxiety that it's draining on them. They're tired. Mm. Today, the kiev national opera they were rehearsing and just had to run down to the bomb shelter for hours and i worry about things like power look at an opera house it needs a lot of power and electricity and just all the practical things we take advantage of they're Mm. not gonna have that throughout the winter maybe
1: you talked about the practical aspect of putting these musicians together Mm. but what was it like emotionally for you and for them As you're watching these people finally back making music, forget about the audience, but how did you hold it together for them?
2: (laughs) The way you ask that, you understand, yes. This was not just a job. This was not just creating an orchestra of great musicians, which they are. It was about forming an orchestra of soldiers of music. We were going out to fight, not just play beautiful concerts and have wonderful success musically. This was really to show the world that Ukraine has great talent and culture. So a lot of these musicians had tremendous stories, which I didn't know about the first day. For example, one of the cellists, a young girl, she came up to me in the third rehearsal and she said, do you know that photo that was taken of us? It was for publicity for a paper in London. She said, my father would love a copy of it. And I said, Oh, really? What does your father do? She said, Well, he's fighting in Dunbass. And she showed me his picture. She didn't say it with tears. She said it so proudly. And I hugged her and I said, Well, maybe my cousin knows your father and they're fighting together. You know, it was just, it was a surreal type of relationship with these people. And I could tell that they were so determined to be the best possible orchestra. I mean, that's what I do as a musician. I want to get 100%. But I felt this incredible determination like I've never seen before. Because first of all, David, we only had 10 days of 75 musicians who have never played together, most of them. And I came up with a schedule that was grueling. And I'll never forget the first rehearsal. I just played these two symphonies. Sure, there were some rocky moments and it was rough. Then we had a second rehearsal that night because we had, they had to go get their visas in the afternoon at the in British Embassy. So it was a huge long day. By the way, the day before they'd arrived on a 15-hour bus ride through the Polish border wow. from Ukraine. These players were exhausted and I knew that, but they never showed it. So the nighttime rehearsal of this first day was Brahm Symphony. I played it through without stopping. And at the end... I looked at these players, and I could tell they're tired, and I said, I'd like to take a vote. We could stop here. We could stop now. You can all get some good rest, and we can come back tomorrow. And they said, we want to work. It was a chilling moment. It just showed that they were so emboldened and passionate about being the best they possibly could. By day four, I remember the principal cellist, he came up to me, he said, you know what, Carrie Lynn, I think we're ready... If we even had a concert tonight, we're ready. And so this 10 days of extraordinary, laborious work together, which was sheer joy for me, I'm sure nobody slept. And, of course, they're all human. They went and partied at the end of the day, right. I'm sure, around Warsaw. They were happy to have some freedom and get away from all their the sheer horror of it all. Um, so the results were tremendous. And this was... Something so rare. We were all emotionally connected.
1: It was a journey together as human beings. That was really special. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at David Krauss Trumpet and go to our website artfulnarrativesmedia.com for show notes, links, and information on all of our guests. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.